There has to come a point at which you say, enough. Says you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People Powered Radio in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast at 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. And on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey and Radio Sputnik blanketing planet Earth five days a week. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Back from a, uh, a, a quick day off following the conventions, the two conventions. My thanks to Angie Coiro of In Deep Radio for giving us a short breather, which we needed. De- oh, I don't know about you, De- Desi Doyen. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I needed it. No, uh, no, no, I needed it, definitely. Uh, yeah, that's what I figured. That I was a whole lot of politics all at once. Yes, it was. And, and it, just a difficult two weeks to cover and... Um, following on a whole bunch of uh, even more difficult weeks prior to that. So we needed it. Uh, We could use a lot more time off, but we are back nonetheless. And uh, after not just those two weeks, by the way, of convention madness, but also after all of the very, very good voting rights news that came in on Friday. And we only covered a part of it on uh, on this program uh, one of the court cases, the landmark uh, uh, voting rights case, I believe, in North Carolina that happened on Friday. There were more. There were two others that came in on Friday and some more since then. We will be talking about what is really very good news for voting rights, something you rarely hear on this program. Uh, very good news for voting rights uh, with Julie Ebenstein of the ACLU shortly. In the meantime... Uh, Well, that was quick. Uh, What a difference a convention makes or a few days make since that convention or uh, the difference that an attack on the parents of a U.S. soldier killed in Iraq apparently make. So remember the forecast uh, that I shared with you last week from Nate Silver's data journalism site, 538.com. He uh, that was reporting on the uh, the win probabilities for both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton based on all the existing data and polls etc that 538 uh, includes in their in their computer simulations so based on all of that information 
Uh, if the election were held that very day last week when we reported on this, this was a series of days actually last week during the conventions, they simulated, they took all that data, they simulated the election if it were held that day by their computer 20,000 times. And then they predict the distribution of possible outcomes for each state and then the winner of the presidential race based on that simulation. Well, last week, based on that data, uh, if the election were held that day, Donald Trump had a 55 percent probability of winning the election at that time. Hillary Clinton had just a 45 percent chance of winning. Again, based on all of that information, all of the polls uh, that they collate from all over the country, national polls, state poll, polls, etc. Well, a slew of new polling numbers have now come out since uh, since we uh, were, were on with you last week, since the convention in a bunch of states and uh, nationally as well, uh, the polls were taken both near the end of and then after the DNC convention in Philadelphia. And boy, howdy, has the outlook uh, for November changed, at least based on the data available today. It changed a big time or big league, as Donald Trump might say. <laughs> Uh, in favor of Hillary Clinton. According to uh, that same computer simulation over there at 538.com, again, using the latest data 20,000 times in their simulation, running the election across the country, the probability of Hillary Clinton now defeating Donald Trump, it had been 45%, remember, with Donald Trump leading at 55%. Right. Now, uh, the probability of Hillary Clinton winning if the election were held today Eighty three point five percent. Wow, that's rather that's quite a switcheroo. You think uh, Trump's uh, probability of winning if the election were held today? Sixteen point five percent. So it's gone from uh, 55, 45 Trump to eighty three to 16 uh, Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. Wow. And this is reflected in a bunch of polls uh, across the country, uh, including places like, for example, Missouri, which when I grew up there used to be a swing state. Actually, when uh, Bill Clinton uh, was uh, running back in uh, back in the 90s, Clinton and George W. Bush Sr., they would come out to uh, St. Louis, Missouri all the time because it was considered a swing state. And in the years since, since I left, so yes, I blame myself, <laughs> uh, Missouri has become uh, considered to be a red state. Well, now a uh, new poll from Mason-Dixon polling finds that uh, Hillary Clinton actually leads Donald Trump in Missouri, in the show-me state, 41% to 40%. So just one point, but uh, Hillary Clinton is leading Donald Trump in Missouri. Libertarian presidential nominee Gary Johnson ranks third in the state with 9%. Uh, Green Party candidate Jill Stein takes 1%. Another 9% are undecided, but the fact that Hillary Clinton is even within the margin of error in Missouri should tell you quite a bit. By the way, based on that Mason-Dixon poll, 51 percent see Trump unfavorably, while just I'm saying just just 45 percent view Clinton unfavorable uh, unfavorably. So tr Trump's unfavorability is up in Missouri. The, uh, the pollster here, uh, Mason-Dixon pollster Brad Coker, told the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, really, Missouri right now looks like a turnout game, which is 
really kind of the same thing that is going on nationally. It's a matter of whoever is more successful in convincing their people that their candidate isn't as bad as the other one wins, says uh, uh, says the Mason-Dixon poll. Now, it's not just Missouri. Uh, Harry Enten, also from 538.com, notes that uh, Trump and Clinton are tied in Georgia. In Georgia, they are tied. Uh, And Hillary Clinton is leading by 1% in, get ready, Utah. Wow. So um, it's it's just kind of amazing if you go on a state-by-state basis, at least as of now. As I said, things change quickly around here. Meanwhile, nationally... Hillary Clinton emerges from her uh, party's convention in Philadelphia with a restored lead over Donald Trump. She has earned a seven-point convention bounce, at least according to the uh, new CNN ORC poll. In a two-way head-to-head matchup, Clinton now leads Trump by, is this right? Yeah, nine points, 52% to 43%. Clinton over Trump by nine points. In a four-way matchup, including uh, Johnson and Stein from the Libertarian and Green parties, Clinton leads 45 to 37. So an eight-point lead, uh, even with the other two uh, candidates, the other two party candidates included in that poll. So she's had a big jump coming out of the convention. And that's fairly typical, is it not? Uh, it used to be typical. They used to get more bumps than they have in recent years. Ah, okay. Actually, her bump is is about, it depends which poll you're looking at, uh, but her bump, let's see here, uh, the uh, CBS News poll found uh, a, a similar bump. 46% of voters say they'll vote for Clinton in November, just 39 say they'll back Trump. So that's a seven-point lead there for, uh, for Hillary Clinton in that particular, in the CBS News poll. Um... And if you include the leaners, people who are not sure but might lean towards a candidate, in that case, uh, Clinton uh, leads Trump by six points. But the uh, the bump there was uh, similar to what they saw with uh, with Barack Obama in his last two elections. So it's typical that they get some sort of a bump. It looks like hers is uh, is better than what Donald Trump got after his convention, though he did get a bump himself as well. So uh, nearly half of registered voters, according to CNN, say that um, what they saw or read at the Democratic convention left them feeling more likely to vote for Clinton versus 39 percent who said it turned them off from supporting her. Trump's convention merited a slight negative tilt on that same question, according to CNN ORC. Forty two percent said they would be more apt to back uh, Donald Trump after the convention, while 44 percent said they would be less likely to back Donald Trump after watching the uh, the GOP convention. So um, in the meantime, when it comes to Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, the uh, despite the regular interruption from the uh, Sanders supporters, according to CNN, delegates inside the convention hall, uh, the, the interruptions inside the convention hall, um, it appears to have bolstered unity for the party, for Democratic unity overall, and strengthened her position among Sanders voters. Among Democrats and independents who lean towards the Democratic Party, 84 percent now feel that the party will be united this November. That's up from 75 percent before uh, before either convention. And those who say they would rather have seen the party nominate uh, Sanders among the Sanders backers, in other words, 
Uh, they now go 69% for Clinton, 13% for Jill Stein, 10% for Gary Johnson, and just 3% say they will back Donald Trump. Okay, <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, so uh, 3% still say they'll vote uh, for Donald Trump, claim to vote for uh, Bernie Sanders, support Bernie Sanders, and yet they're willing to support Donald Trump. Who really? represents the exact opposite of pretty much everything that Sanders has yep. called for. Uh, it's, a, by the way, a five-point improvement for Hillary Clinton among those uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, according to, uh, according to CNN. So uh, what else do we have here? Oh, yeah. So this is uh, now we're looking real clear politics now has the national average uh, taking all of these national polls into account, putting uh, Clinton over Trump by about four and a half percent. So still not all that much, still within uh, an easy margin of error. And of course, those are national numbers pay more attention to the state numbers in the meantime. You can also pay attention to self-identified conservative voters, people who believe they are conservative. Well, their support apparently for Donald Trump is collapsing. According to Steve Portnoy over at CBS, Trump's support among self-identified conservatives in their new CBS News poll is at 64 percent. But Bush in uh, back in 2004, his support among conservatives was 84 uh, percent for McCain. It was 78 percent for Romney. It was 82 percent. But for Trump among self-ID conservatives, 64 percent. Portnoy goes on to say that perhaps the most startling finding in the CBS News poll among self-described conservatives, 21 percent now say they'll vote for Clinton over Trump. Twenty one percent. Of conservative people call themselves conservative. That's it. Only 21 percent of them will say they will vote for Clinton over Trump. And as a matter of fact, the guy, uh, the managing editor over at Red State, which is this, you know, right wing conservative uh, uh, website, the guy, the managing editor there over there, Leon Wolf, says, I don't have a party registration card for the registration for the Republican Party. But if I did, I would burn it. He says he is done with the Republican Party. He is so embarrassed by what is going on. But not everybody is embarrassed, even given uh, Donald Trump's attack in recent days against the parents of this uh, Muslim American uh, soldier who was killed back in Iraq in 2004. They spoke out. The parents, the cons um, spoke out uh, during the Democratic uh, election. I'm sure you heard about this. Everybody's been talking about it. Angie Coyro talked about it yesterday on uh, on the broadcast. Well, a lot of people are denouncing Trump uh, for attacking those Muslim parents, essentially. Uh, Kazir uh, Khan uh, repeated his call for uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to repudiate Trump, saying they have a moral obligation to speak out against their party's standard bearer. However, Ryan and McConnell... Uh, while they expressed support for for the cons, they reiterated their opposition to Trump's proposed ban on Muslims, but neither mentioned Donald Trump by name and neither abandoned his support for the Republican nominee. We're seeing that all over the place. Now, John McCain did uh, mention Donald Trump by name, uh, said that he uh, has disparaged a fallen soldier's parents. He suggested that the likes of their son should not be allowed in the United States to say nothing of entering its service. I cannot emphasize enough how deeply I disagree with Mr. Trump's statement. Uh, that said... 
John McCain had said he was going to vote for whoever the Republican nominee was, and he has not unendorsed Donald Trump in that uh, in that regard. He has not said that he would not vote for Donald Trump. And those who have uh, previously not endorsed Donald Trump, people like Jeb Bush and Lindsey Graham, obviously, you know, they have been rebuking Donald Trump for his comments, but none of them are saying that they will vote for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. And if they really are concerned about Donald Trump, why aren't they coming out and saying, yeah, uh, Donald Trump is so bad, I will vote for Hillary Clinton. So Lindsey Graham, he condemned what Trump said. He, he claimed that, uh, you know, the GOP has a tradition of not attacking gold star parents, which, by the way, is not true. <laughs> true. Uh, That's right. Anybody remember Cindy Sheehan? Name ring a bell? Jesus Christ, they went after her like crazy. We were out there at the time back in in, uh, in 2005 in Crawford, Texas, covering that on uh, on on this program. Uh, and, uh, you know, so the idea that, no, they don't attack gold starred parents is nonsense. Nonetheless. All right. Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham. Put your money where your mouth is. Why don't you say you're going to vote for Hillary Clinton? If Donald Trump is such a danger, or such a menace to the country and to your party, why don't you you know, say you will uh, uh, vote for Hillary Clinton. So I had been thinking about this uh, for the last few days as I've seen this re these reports coming in. It's like, you know, they're when when they condemn, fine. Um, but they often don't do it by name and they don't unendorse and they don't say that, OK, we're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh Barack Obama, as it turns out, speaking just this morning, apparently he's inside my head. Apparently he heard my thoughts on this. And at a joint press conference uh, on Tuesday with the prime minister of Singapore, the president was asked by a reporter if, based on Donald Trump's most uh, recent comments, if he believed that Trump was unfit for the office of president, he said that uh, Trump appeared to lack basic knowledge of critical foreign policy issues, uh, and he was critical about the fact that these Republicans were failing to unendorse him. Yes, I think the uh, Republican nominee is unfit uh, to serve as president. I think what's been interesting is the repeated denunciations of his statements by leading Republicans. And the question I think that they have to ask themselves is, if you are repeatedly having to say in very strong terms that what he has said is unacceptable, why are you still endorsing him? What does this say about your party that this is your standard bearer? This isn't a situation where you have an episodic gaffe this is daily and weekly where they are distancing themselves from statements he's making. There has to be a point at which you say, this is not somebody I can support for President of the United States. Even if he purports to be a member of my party. And uh, you know, the fact that that has not yet happened makes some of these denunciations ring hollow. I don't doubt their sincerity. I don't doubt that uh, they were 
outraged about some of the statements that Mr. Trump and his supporters made about the Khan family. But there has to come a point at which you say, somebody who makes those kinds of statements doesn't have the judgment, the temperament, uh, the understanding to occupy the most powerful position in the world. Because a lot of people depend on the White House getting stuff right. And that's not my, just my opinion. That is the opinion of many prominent Republicans. There has to come a point at which you say, enough. Well, you'd think, but apparently we're not yet at that at that point. Uh, that was uh, yeah. Barack Obama calling the nominee for president of the United States for the Republican Party unfit for office. I mean, obviously he's partisan. We see that you know all the time in elections, but what we don't see is calling the uh, the nominee unfit. Kinda remarkable. And yes, these people have not unendorsed. Although there is one, we now have the first one. We now have the first Republican to the first uh, rat to jump ship. Yeah, there. You, well, there you go. Well, you know, rats from a sinking That's kind of mean. Item. That's what I meant. Wow, <laughs> so mean, Desi. Don't sorry. Uh, U.S. Congressman Richard Hanna, a three-term Republican, said on Tuesday that he will vote for Hillary Clinton for president because Donald Trump is quote unfit to serve our party and cannot lead this country. He's the first Republican member of Congress to publicly declare that he will vote for uh, Hillary Clinton in November. Now, mind you, he's retiring, so I, maybe it's easier for him to do this on the way out the door. But he said he could never uh, he could never support Trump. Um, and uh, previously he had he had said that before, but he had uh, stopped short of backing Clinton. Now he's saying, yep, I'm going to endure. I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton. He uh, represents uh, an eight-county district in upstate New York. He said in an interview that he considered giving his support to Clinton for several months and finally decided to take action this week after watching Trump criticize the Muslim-American parents of a U.S. Army captain uh, killed in Iraq. He said, I saw that and felt incensed. He added, I think Trump is a national embarrassment. Is he really the guy you want to have uh, the nuclear codes? It should be noted, however, that he has frequently split with his uh, GOP colleagues on social issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. And Desi Doyne, he is among only 13 Republican House members to even acknowledge that humans have contributed to climate change. OK, well, that explains a lot. Then. There you go. So uh, that's it. That's all we got. In the meantime, uh, we do have an election ahead and um, we had some remarkable news on Friday concerning voting rights, concerning voting rights restrictions by these same Republicans in places like North Carolina, Wisconsin and Kansas and more. And we will be talking about that next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now.
nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. Yeah, it happens to be true this time. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, listen, I, I know it's not fashionable in the talk radio biz to discuss good news. We're supposed to be simply outraged by something or other each and every day in each and every segment. But the broadcast don't roll that way, especially not when we've got uh, just such a spate of remarkably good news on an issue that we follow perhaps closer than anybody else on the air, to be frank. Uh, voting rights and uh, many cases here in the past few uh, about 10 days have been incredibly good, incredibly good court news. We have had a huge spate of shockingly encouraging news on the voting rights front this year and uh, just within the last two weeks. There are still many reasons to be worried about the outcome of this year's elections from the top of the ticket on down. But in regard to the voter suppression laws that Republicans have been putting in place all over the country in states where they control the legislature and the governor's mansion, particularly following the U.S. Supreme Court's 2013 decision that gutted the central part of the Voting Rights Act, requiring uh, preclearance for new election laws in jurisdictions with a long history of racial discrimination, those restrictive laws, making it harder to vote and otherwise restricting the franchise by making it harder for certain demographics, uh, specifically here generally Democratic-leaning demographics such as minorities, the poor, students, the elderly, Laws that have most likely uh, would never have been implemented had the full protections of the Voting Rights Act still been in place. Those laws, laws that have been challenged by voting rights advocates now for years in courtrooms, are finally being cut down. And in several cases by conservative judges and courts, for that matter. On Friday, on the broadcast, we covered the huge breaking news out of North Carolina from the full fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals there, striking down most of the provisions of that state's massive voter suppression law. The court there actually joined me in characterizing that law as the worst since the Jim Crow era, finding that the law put in place by Republicans just days after the Supreme Court had gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 had mandated draconian photo ID restrictions at the polls, it shortened early voting, it killed same-day registration, ended early voter registration for 16- and 17-year-olds, it barred the tabulation of provisional ballots in the wrong precinct. All of those provisions were nixed on Friday by the uh, Fourth Circuit in a landmark ruling that determined the provisions had, quote, targeted African-American voters with almost surgical precision. That ruling, handed down in North Carolina just before we went to air on Friday, wasn't the only very good news ruling that came down that same day, as we similarly saw later on in the day encouraging rulings from courts in Wisconsin, Kansas, uh, following on more good news out of courts just days earlier, uh, such as the Fifth Circuit in Texas, the nation's most conservative federal court, uh, about a week earlier. As Ari Berman wrote at The Nation yesterday, six major GOP voting restrictions have been blocked in two weeks. The Republican war on voting rights, he, he says, is backfiring. 
He uh, details, in the past 10 days, courts have issued six major decisions against GOP-backed voting restrictions in five different states. On Friday, an array of new voting restrictions were struck down in North Carolina, in Wisconsin, and Kansas. That followed rulings the previous week, softening voter ID laws in Texas and Wisconsin, and striking down Michigan's ban on straight-ticket voting. Berman writes, when you include a court decision in Ohio from May reinstating a week of early voting and same-day registration, anti-voting laws in six states have been blocked so far in 2016. And he wrote that before another court ruling in North Dakota, this is late on Monday, struck down that state's photo ID law because it was found as discriminatory to Native American voters. Now, many of these rulings in courts come thanks in no small part to voting rights champions like the NAACP and the ACLU, which has long been challenging these restrictions on voting rights all over the country. Now, while you're out fighting for or against your favorite or most loathed candidates, the ACLU is out there fighting to make sure you can cast that vote at all. Joining us now to discuss what seems to me to be a sea change in the November outlook for voting rights, at least at this point, and to caution us, no doubt, about some of the remaining concerns in those states and many others is Julie Ebenstein. She's a staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project. She's focused on challenging the proliferation of voter suppression laws throughout the country and has been the staff attorney uh, previously with the ACLU of Florida, counsel in several voting rights cases, including litigation preventing reduction to early voting, challenging Florida's voter purge, and more. Yeah, you're familiar with it. Uh, Julie Ebenstein, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks very much, Brad. Thanks for having me. So good to have you here. Uh, and I want to cover some of these specific rulings around the country, Julie. Uh, happily, and, and this never happens, that there may be more good news than we have time to cover. Uh, but, but I also want to look at the big picture. So obviously, I'm quite encouraged by this spate of very good voting news, uh, voting rights news of late. There are concerns out there, but am I overstating the amount of really good and surprisingly good news that we're suddenly seeing here on this front over the past few days? No, I think you're right on the mark. It's really been an exciting couple of weeks. Uh, we've seen, like you said, courts in mm -hmm. six different states strike down suppressive voting laws. Um, we've seen both state courts and federal courts, including federal appeals courts, decide that the burdens that have been placed on voting since 2013 are uh, either unconstitutional or in violation of the Voting Rights Act. It, uh, it looks like there's going to be much stronger protection leading up to the 2016 election than, than we had thought. So it's, it's really very encouraging, and it is nice to get to talk about good news. Yeah, for a change. Uh, the, the Voting Rights Act, uh, which is uh, violated in a number of these laws, is determined by these courts. A lot of people, you know, we report that the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court back, uh, back in 2013, and it was, and yet these laws are found to violate the Voting Rights Act. Can you very quickly just explain how it is that the Voting Rights Act was both gutted and still protecting voters in many of these cases? Sure. So we're talking about two different sections of the Voting Rights Act. The section of the Voting Rights Act that was gutted in 2013 with the Shelby County decision is Section 5. And what that provision provided was uh, 
protection only for some states where the state would have to seek preclearance from the federal government, either the Department of Justice or a three-judge panel out of the D.C. District Court. Um, the state would need that sort of preclearance before they could implement any law that affected voting. And I mean anything as small as moving a polling place or as large as something like the North Carolina uh, law that you mentioned a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only did states have to have to seek uh, preclearance from the federal government, but the burden was on the state to show that the law wouldn't be retrogressive and uh, have a negative effect on minority voters. That, that provision was pretty much taken out of operation by the Supreme Court in 2013. Mm-hmm. However, there's still Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that applies nationwide uh, and provides protection against um, racial discrimination in voting. The issue there is that the law can be implemented before there's a court's determination or any federal determination on whether or not it violates the Voting Rights Act. So what you've seen in a lot of the states you just mentioned Mm -hmm. is that these laws are put into effect, for example, in North Carolina in August of 2013, and immediately um, there are lawsuits challenging challenging that law. We sued the day that the law went into effect in 2013, and now three years later, we've received a decision after a full trial from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. So you can see the problem there. It's difficult to have elections go forward with laws that may very well um, be unconstitutional Mm -hmm. or a violation of the Voting Rights Act, and to find out later that that's the case. So there is still protection uh, for, for voting rights and protection against racial discrimination, both in the Voting Rights Act and the Constitution, but we are missing a key provision at this point. And that means without that key provision, these laws go in place. As you said, Julie Ebenstein, you challenge the, uh, you can file the suit, but it has to play out. It doesn't block it the way the, the, the preclearance uh, from Section 5 would have done, uh, would have done in, in prior to 2013. So, you have this long process for all of these laws. You have elections that are held under these uh, unconstitutional and or, uh, you know, violative uh, uh, violations of the Voting Rights Act. But the laws move forward. Uh, the elections move forward anyway, even with these bad laws. And it's a number of years before anything can be done about it. Now, are you surprised by some of these rulings that we have seen uh, in the past few days? Or did you see them coming? Did you know they would come? But it was just a matter of working through the, the, the court process now that you have to go through with Section 2, unlike Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Well, it, it's uh, I'm I'm encouraged with all the rulings. It's um, it was surprising to get so many rulings in such a short period of time and mm. a bit uh, a bit overwhelming. But I I'm not surprised that the courts are still finding that there's protection for voting rights. And given how extreme and egregious some of these laws are, I'm not surprised that the courts have found that they violate the Constitution. Uh, so I I think a lot of these laws have really gone very far to put barriers in the way of voters, and in many instances, particularly in the way of black voters. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that the courts have said, uh, you may not have Section 5, but what you're doing still violates the Constitution. In uh, a number of these states, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Texas, Texas with the uh, arguably the most conservative uh, appellate court uh, in the nation in the, uh, what is that, the Fifth Circuit down there in Texas, uh, all 
uh, have blocked photo ID restrictions within the past few days. Are, are, are we finally seeing the end to these discriminatory photo ID laws around the country, or will they continue to move forward? I know you work in Missouri. Missouri is trying to get it on the ballot, uh, a, a, a constitutional provision for the, uh, their state constitution for a photo ID restriction. But are some of these rulings finally ending this photo ID nonsense, this fiction, or is this going to make its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and be found at some point uh, constitutional and we'll see these uh, photo ID restrictions all over the country? Well, well, we certainly hope that this would end the continued passage of laws like these uh, for the voters' sake. The, it's very expensive both to try to implement a voter ID law and to uh, defend against a federal court challenge, which we're now seeing has quite a good likelihood of winning and finding the law unconstitutional uh, or unlawful in the end. So we've seen in North Carolina striking down a photo ID law in North Dakota, in Texas, in Wisconsin, um, striking it down either in its entirety or a particular part of that law. Mm-hmm. I would think that this would discourage legislators from moving forward with with these sorts of laws, but of course that can be difficult to predict. At the very least, we're seeing that courts are uh, willing to step in and recognize that these that these laws are uh, uh, can't go forward for elections. So. Certainly that's encouraging, and I think that these court cases or these court decisions really show a few different things. One is that not everyone can comply with these restrictions, and I think that's a a hurdle for some people to really picture. I might say, oh, but if I get on an airplane, I have to show ID. If I do other things, drive a car, I may have to show ID. It it takes uh, some people a moment to realize that not everyone flies, not everyone drives, not everyone has a home. We have uh, homeless veteran clients who are certainly still entitled to and encouraged to exercise their fundamental right to vote. We have uh, older clients, one who's a World War II veteran, who doesn't have uh, sufficient ID Mm -hmm. and would be unable to vote if it were not for these lawsuits. So there's a broader recognition that this is really disenfranchising people in a very practical day-to-day sense. I think the other thing that the laws have highlighted is that they're just not justified. They're, as North Carolina uh, put it, the laws constitute solutions in search of a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we've been saying since the beginning. There's no evidence or absolutely minimal evidence of any sort of voter impersonation, which is what these laws purport to protect against. Mm -hmm. So you have laws that, that will disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of voters or potential voters, and the only justification for them is uh, uh, maybe, at most, uh, a showing of one or two instances where there's been some difficulty, uh, oftentimes that was caught, mm-hmm. having to do with somebody voting where they weren't eligible. It's just it's shocking when you, um, when you look at the harm that these laws cause and the lack of justification that, they've, that they were passed in the first place. And I should also note, since you mentioned uh, the requirement for an ID uh, when getting on an airplane, it's actually not a requirement. They'll ask right, you for right. a photo <laughs> ID. Well, it's only important because when I see that, you know, coming up in court cases, what was it Frank Easterbrook up in the Tenth Circuit? Uh, I, I think it was uh, uh, one of one of the Wisconsin the seventh, decisions. Yeah, seventh, yeah. yeah. 
you know, claiming that, hey, you need an ID to get on a plane. In truth, you don't. You can go to the TSA website. You can see they will ask you for an ID when you board a plane. But if you don't have one, they have provisions to make sure that you can get on that plane anyway. They have databases and so forth. They'll, it'll be a bit more hassle, but you will get on that plane most likely. Not so when it comes to these photo ID laws. If you don't have the type of ID that is now required by some of these laws, you lose your vote, period. There are no you know, special provisions for the, what, 30 or 35 million uh, American regist legally registered American voters who don't have the type of ID required under these laws. Now, uh, Julie Ebenstein uh, of the ACLU, uh, what are the possibilities here now that the Supreme Court can still mess things up, mess up these uh, otherwise good uh, court rulings. Uh, in 2014, for example, we saw a number of encouraging decisions on discriminatory laws at the uh, U.S. District Court and at the federal appeals court level, but the Supreme Court undid some of those only because the court rulings came in too late and the Supreme Court has created this, what I think what they call the, the Purcell principle in recent years that disallows changes to election laws, uh, e even if they're found to be you know unconstitutional, disenfranchising laws, disallows those uh, uh, changes just prior to an election because it's too late. We don't want to cause confusion. Do we have concern that that may happen on some of these rulings uh, from the past week or or two at this point at the Supreme Court? Well, we saw in 2014, we saw the Purcell principle applied in both directions, really. In some instances, mm -hmm. allowing for more protection of voting rights because it was too close to the election to, to switch gears. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, uh, less protection. So it is a, a concern of the Supreme Court that when you get too close to an election, trying to change the rules of administration are going to cause harm. Um, it's a lot. Things are moving a lot earlier this year, which is encouraging. So, if North Carolina uh, seeks a stay of the Fourth Circuit decision, and and no doubt they will, uh, we still have enough time to sort out. Um, uh, well, for mm -hmm. the Supreme Court to decide whether or not that decision will be stayed, and have that in time for North Carolina to uh, apply and administer the Fourth Circuit decision. Um, to allow for greater protection of voting rights. So we're, we're not quite as close to the election this time around mm -hmm. um, as we were in 2014. So the, the, the reasoning behind some of those stays, I believe, really isn't in place. But just to be clear, especially in, in a place like North Carolina, you know, there's not a cost to administering some of these protections. So you mentioned the out-of-precinct voting provision. Mm -hmm. Whereas before 2013, when the suppressive law was passed, people could vote out of precinct and have their vote counted. After the law was passed, they could cast that same provisional ballot at an out of precinct location, but their vote would be thrown out and mm -hmm. not counted. As far as the voter, their actions are the same. So it's not asking too much uh, for the state to allow the voter to exercise their fundamental right to vote by counting that ballot. That's not a, the type of provision that takes a, uh, a reboot of the entire system. It just asks uh, uh, the mm -hmm. elections administrators 
um, to treat ballots one way as opposed to another. So for the voter, there's not there's not the risk of confusion with regard to many of these laws. Is there a uh, likelihood that some of these uh, appeals to the Supreme Court, uh, you mentioned uh, you suspect North Carolina will ask for a stay from the court, is there a chance that they will at this point slow walk the appeal to make it as to bring it, you know, as late as possible to the court in order to trigger that uh, Purcell principle to, uh, you know, to block this or that? No, that that's not likely in these instances. I, I, I uh, first of all, you're you're working under a very urgent schedule when you're seeking a stay because mm-hmm. you're trying to anyone who's seeking a stay is trying to convince the court that this, uh, despite the a valid decision, it has to be urgently stayed so it can be decided very very quickly. You lose a lot of credibility on that if you if you drag your feet and and wait. Um, and I I do believe win or lose. Uh, a lot of states, especially uh, the the people who actually administer the election in those states, mm-hmm. really want to have this sorted out. So they know one way or another what's going to happen in 2016. There are still some 17 states, as uh, Ari Berman describes at The Nation uh, this week, still some 17 states with new restrictions on voting in place before the November election. Uh, As as we've noted, this will be the first presidential election without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. The first time in 50 years, by the way, since it was passed. In 1965, and this is the uh, this week, as a matter of fact, is the 51st anniversary of that landmark legislation. Uh, I, I know uh, you've been working, Julie Ebenstein, on felon disenfranchisement uh, yourself for a while and uh, voting roll purges and so forth. What are your or the and or the ACLU's uh, concerns about the November election at this point? What what states, what laws, uh, despite all this good news, uh, should should we still be quite concerned about as we move towards November? Well, like you said, there are a number of laws that that are still very recent, uh, and a number of the cases that that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. even though we have a good decision, there are still going to be ongoing challenges. So, in some instances, those are preliminary injunctions, and they will still be appealed before the next election. Things do stay in flux um, for quite some time. So uh, before I go through some of the concerns, Mm -hmm. I would just encourage everybody to check right now whether you're registered, make sure your registration is up to date, make sure it has the accurate address Mm -hmm. uh, on file, and know what the rules are. Um, We're still concerned about voter ID laws uh, either being moved forward, like you said, in Missouri, Mm -hmm. um, or, or that could possibly still be in place. We're concerned about some of the states where it's a, there's a better regime than there would have been without litigation, but that will still require somebody to fill in what's called a reasonable impediment affidavit. So if I don't have identification in Wisconsin, for example, um, I need to fill out an affidavit. Now that is decades better than uh, a requirement that I have ID, and if I don't, I can't vote at all. Mm-hmm. But it's still something that we're worried in a presidential election may slow down lines at the polls, mm-hmm. clog up certain polling places, prevent people from being able to um, cast their ballot because of some of those uh, long lines. We're, we're keeping an eye on um, voter rolls and what sort of list maintenance states are doing mm-hmm. from now until the election. Um, and, of course, we're trying to get out as much accurate information as possible 
on uh, citizens with a prior felony conviction to make sure that they're aware of whether or not they can vote or what they need to do to be able to vote. We had some uh, what appeared to be good news a few weeks ago out of Virginia, where the uh, the governor there, Terry McAuliffe, uh, had, uh, and I believe I'm I'm right in, in the right state here, Virginia, uh, where he mm-hmm. had allowed yeah. some uh, ten or twenty thousand former felons who had you know served their time, gone through all their pr- probation, their parole, everything else, and it basically reinstated their right to vote in one fell swoop. But then the court came in uh, a few days ago and said, no, you can't do that. The governor has the power to reinstate uh, uh, former felons, uh, you know, voting rights, but can't do it all at once. He's got to do it on a case-by-case basis. And so those felons who had regained their right to vote have since lost their right to vote yet again, it seems. Can you uh, update us on the status of of that case, uh, Julie Ebenstein? Any idea where we're at on that one? Sure, and I'm glad you brought that case up because I I fear that it might cause some confusion in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the governor did remove political disabilities, which means restore people's rights to vote, um, in 206,000 instances. So Mm. over 200,000 citizens who had lost their right to vote because of a felony conviction had already served their time, completed probation and parole, and were back with their community and family, uh, working, paying taxes, going about their life, were still unable to vote. Virginia, up until the governor's action, is one of the real outliers in the country. It's one of only four states that disenfranchise people with a felony conviction for life. The others are Kentucky, Iowa, and, of course, uh, Florida. Of course. The, um, the governor, the governor uh, restored voting rights to 206,000 people. Um, uh, two state legislators and some individual citizens challenged his authority to do that. And the state Supreme Court decided, like you said, that the governor could not do a blanket restoration for all of these citizens. He had to make a determination on a one-to-one basis. So thankfully, after the court's decision, um, the governor has has said publicly that he will uh, very quickly make sure that each individual's rights are restored. Um, And that's very encouraging. You know, of the 200,000, 13,000 had already gone and registered to vote. We wrote uh, an amicus brief in that case, and we spoke to a number of people who were really encouraged and excited to have their voting rights back after waiting in some instances for decades. And if you look at the statistics of who was affected, more often than not, it was nonviolent offenders. More often than not, it was people who completed their sentence more than 10 years ago. This is not some uh, threatening uh, group of of people recently convicted and and still serving a punishment. These are people who had rehabilitated themselves and just wanted to rejoin society fully instead of being um, marked for the rest of their life. So it's it's encouraging that the governor will still uh, restore voting rights, but if someone has had their voting rights restored and registered to vote, uh, they may need to register again. Oh. So the easiest way to, um, again, that's a flux, so it's a little bit mm-hmm. uh, difficult to say in each county. The easiest way to find out is just to call your local uh, county elections officials. Find out if you're registered. Find out if you need to fill out the form again, and that should be easy to do. So we would hate to lose any of these uh, uh-huh. long-waiting, much-deserving citizens from the rolls. I hope everybody makes sure that they're registered um, again before before the 
the election. Wow, 200,000 voters re- voter registrations uh, potentially up for grabs there. Uh, very, we got just a, a, another minute or so here, Julie, and uh, this may or may not be easy to do in a minute, but Kansas, it is actually election day in Kansas. Uh, there has long been a fight with that uh, Secretary of State there. Uh, Chris Kobach, Republican Secretary of State, has been keep it they put in place a citizenship requirement a proof of citizenship and if you couldn't prove that uh, or you didn't prove your citizenship you were being kept from voting courts have decided on a federal level uh many of those voters can vote but he was still blocking them from voting on a state level as we were heading into tuesday's state primary in Kansas, uh, there was a decision on, uh, on on those voters. I think it was about 17,000 voters who didn't even know if they could vote uh, in the state primary. Right. So, so there's been a lot of movement in Kansas, and it's really shocking that the Secretary of State, who is supposed to be encouraging eligible citizens to vote and streamlining that process, is, is holding on to a system that will clearly disenfranchise uh, voters. Luckily, we have a state court case, and those rules have been enjoined for the upcoming primary election. So the situation there, very briefly, is that uh, we sued in federal court to make sure that those who registered at the DMV did not need to show documentary proof of citizenship. It's enough that they swore under penalty of perjury that they were a U.S. citizen mm-hmm. eligible to vote. Once that decision uh, was put in place, the, the state went and said, well, the, that protection is only for federal elections, so we're going to split federal and state elections. Fine, we'll register you for federal elections because the federal court says we have to, but we won't allow you to vote in state elections. A state court last Friday decided that there's no authority for the Secretary of State to conduct this dual system of elections and that anyone registered to vote through the DMV would be allowed to vote in all elections during the primary. Um, So, you know, this is not just a problem that one person is facing, this documentary proof of citizenship Mm -hmm. requirement. Like you said, there's 17,000 people who've been unable to provide uh, documentary proof of citizenship, and we want to make sure that they are able and registered to vote for the upcoming election. And those voters, uh, at least, are allowed to vote in the state primary as of now, as of that state court decision on Friday. Yes, they're absolutely allowed to vote in the primary, and there's going to be another hearing on how they'll be treated in the general election come September 21st. Amazing. In any event, I think I'm going to call last Friday Good Friday. Uh, (laughs) Julie Ebenstein of the uh, staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project is so helpful. Really appreciate you uh, catching us up on this entire fine mess. I suspect we're going to have to talk about more such messes in the future. Uh, Hope you'll come back and uh, make us all smarter. (laughs) <laughs> I'd be glad to, Brett. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. You bet. Uh, check out uh, Julie Ebenstein and the important work they're doing over at the ACLU at ACLU.org. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. All right. Uh, talking about monkeying around with elections. Well, I'll explain when we get back. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com 
with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, they might want to uh, shock the monkeys up in uh, in northern Thailand. As it turns out, election officials in northern Thailand think they can buy off a gang of monkey vandals. Monkey vandals? Monkey vandals. I know you're looking at me. They're going to buy them off uh, with fresh fruit, or they're at least going to try f- to buy them off with fresh fruit and vegetables after about 100 macaques. Macaca? How do you say Macaca? Macaques? I don't know. A hundred monkeys uh, tore up voter lists publicly ahead of an August referendum on a proposed constitution. Uh, the uh, fidget election official, oh, I don't even want to try it, Prayun Jakralapa Trakarakalu, yeah. said that if feeding the monkeys did not deter them, then newly installed sliding glass doors might if they don't figure out how to open them. So apparently a band of monkeys raided a Thai polling place and tore up the voter lists. The officials speculated that the pink color of the voter list for the August 7 referendum might have attracted the animals. Two eight-year-old girls in, the northern, in a northern province were charged last week with obstructing the referendum process and destroying public property when they tore down voter lists because the two little girls liked the pink paper on which they were printed. Oh, boy. <laughs> so the little girls and the monkeys, they all liked the... Uh, like the photo li- and tore them up. And I was thinking of little girls who like the monkeys, the band. Well, but not the same. No, thing. <laughs> not the same thing. Oh, see, we could have played that for the for the bumper music. In any event, we think we got problems in this country. At least, a- as far as I know, we don't yet have bands of monkeys actually uh, destroying the voter list. So there's that. No, yeah, that's right. No, we have insiders doing it, so you have no idea if the voter list has been destroyed or not. Maybe we'll talk about some of that on our next thrilling episode of the Bradcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our guest today, Julie Ebenstein of the ACLU, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's thrilling, and it was, thrilling uh, program, really happy about good voting rights news. If you missed any portion, download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes or your favorite podcast site, whatever that may be. You can drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, look out for those monkeys. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>